Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be discussing what it means to take a step out in faith. So if you'll open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't we begin in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we just feel so blessed to have this opportunity to get together every week. We thank you for your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds to your word. And we thank you for your word. And we just ask that the Holy Spirit work in a way today to guide our discussions and to continue to guide our learning and our application of what we learn as we continue our study of Matthew. Father, as I always do, I ask that you speak through me. I don't ever want to misspeak anything about your word. And I ask that you speak through those who speak up to also add to the discussion so that we can all learn from the Holy Spirit as you work in and through each one of us today during our discussions. And then, Father, we just ask that this isn't about knowledge. This is about growing in our relationship with you. And we're so blessed that we can have the opportunity to have a relationship with you. And just help us to stay focused on that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're continuing our study of Matthew. We're in chapter 14, so we're making our way through. And last couple of chapters have been a little longer, so today we've got a little bit of a shorter chapter, so it won't take us as long to go through the lesson today, and we'll spend as much time in discussion as you want. So why don't I begin chapter 14, verse 1. We're going to see Matthew's going to be writing about Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch means governor. This is one of the sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, you will remember, he was a Gentile descendant of Esau. If you want to read about Esau and Jacob, if you're taking notes, write down Genesis 25 through 27. I won't spend time on that now, but Herod the Great had sons. He was hated by the Jews. He once had all the members of the Sanhedrin put to death for questioning his authority. He also executed one of his wives and several of his sons. You'll recall he's the one that had all the babies in Bethlehem killed as he was trying to kill the Messiah. So he was a pretty wicked guy. And when he died in about 4 B.C. roughly, the Romans then divided Palestine into three territories for three of his many sons to then govern. And this, in verse 1, is talking about Herod Antipas. He was one of Herod the Great's sons, and he's not a Jew either. He was given this province, this region of Galilee. And his half-brother, Philip, who we're going to read about as well, he was given northern provinces. They had another brother, Archelaus. He was given Judea and Samaria to govern. So this is who we're talking about. Sometimes it just says Herod and you don't know. Are you talking about Herod the Great? Are you talking about Herod Antipas? So this is Herod Antipas. He's not a king. He's a governor. Verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So now we're going to see, a few lessons back, I referred you to this to explain what happens to John the Baptist. But what's going on here is, and we're going to read about it, is he hears about all Jesus' miracles, so he thinks that Jesus must be John the Baptist who has risen from the dead because Herod knew John the Baptist was a prophet, 
and he probably had some guilt about killing him. We're going to read about how he killed him here as we go on. But this is why he's thinking, well, this Jesus guy, I'm hearing about all these miracles. This must be John the Baptist because he was a prophet, and now he must be coming back to haunt me is sort of what he's thinking. Verse 3. So now we're going to read about what Herod had done with John the Baptist. This is Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great. For Herod had seized John, John the Baptist, and bound him and put him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. So see, here's a mention of Philip, Herod's half-brother. Herod was having an affair with Herodias, who is married to his half-brother. All right, that's what's going on here. Verse 4. For John had been saying to him, saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have her. So John the Baptist was giving Herod a hard time saying, this is adultery that you're doing. You can't be having this affair with Herodias. Verse 5, and although he, Herod, wanted to put John to death, he feared the multitude because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, The daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Okay, so erotic dancing and really excessive eating and drinking, that was the standard for birthday celebrations among the Gentiles and pagans. They were having this big party and probably all drunk, and so Herod decides he wants to show off a little bit. The daughter of Herodias, her name is Salome. You'll see that mentioned from time to time. He has her come in and dance for them. And it says it pleased Herod, probably some erotic dancing. Verse 7, thereupon he, being Herod, promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Herodias, as we mentioned, was in this immoral relationship and she was having this battle with John the Baptist who had accused her and Herod of adultery. They eventually divorced their spouses and married each other, but she wanted to silence John the Baptist. Her husband, again, was Philip, the half-brother of Herod, so that's kind of messed up. And it's also interesting, she was also the niece of Herod Antipas, okay? So... This is kind of a messed up deal, but it is what it is. The mother, Herodias, is so upset. She had previously told her daughter, if you get the chance, let's ask for the head of John the Baptist. Let's kill him. You can see in verse 8, she was prompted by her mother to ask for this. Verse 9, and although he was grieved, so Herod is grieved about this because Even though he didn't like John the Baptist either, he knew that wasn't just. It wasn't right to now just go kill this guy, even though he had John the Baptist in prison. It says, he commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guest. So he had given his word that she could ask anything she wanted. And so he didn't want to go back on his word from what he had said. That would be embarrassing before his guest. She asked it. And so what does he do? Verse 10, and he sent and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother, to Herodias. Verse 12, and his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and they went and reported it to Jesus. So John the Baptist, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. You think about John the Baptist in his life and the way he lived his life and he was the forerunner for Jesus 
prepared the way, baptized him. Then he gets thrown in prison, and then he gets his head cut off. Jesus tells us that we're going to go through tribulation because of our faith. I don't think any of us will have to go through what John the Baptist went through or what any of the disciples had to go through. So when you're going through difficult times, just reflect back on some of these people who had tremendous faith, tremendous faith in Jesus Christ and what they endured for his sake, trying to help others do the right thing. Verse 13, now when Jesus heard it, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself. When Jesus hears of this, Jesus wants to mourn. He wants to mourn over John the Baptist. He probably also just wanted to avoid any confrontation with Herod. And we continue on in 13. And when the multitudes heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when he came out, he saw a great multitude and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. So he quit his mourning, Jesus did, in order to minister to the people when they showed up there. Verse 15, and when it was evening, so he must have done a lot of healing for a long time. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him saying, this place is desolate and the time is already passed. So send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So it's gotten really late. They don't have any food. And the disciples are saying, we're out here in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing for us to eat. So let's send everyone away so that they can go back into their towns and villages and find food for themselves. Clearly, even though they've seen Jesus's miracles, they still can't seem to find it in their hearts to trust Jesus that he can provide for them. So let's watch what Jesus does here. He's going to teach them. Jesus in verse 16 says to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Jesus is getting their attention now. He knows they have a lot of learning to do. And he's telling them, hey, you go get them something to eat. There's more detail on this story. If you go look at some of the other gospels, you can go look at, if you're taking notes, John 6, 5 through 13, or Mark 6, 35 through 44. There's a little more detail. The way Matthew records it here says, the disciples said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And if you go look at the other accounts, there was a small boy who basically had his lunch kit. <laughs> I call it that. doesn't say that. He had five loaves and two small fish. And you can think of these fish are like sardines, okay? You're not going to feed the multitudes with five small loaves of bread and two little tiny fish. But that's all they had. And this is what the disciples say. They say, look, this is all we have. Verse 18, and Jesus said, Bring them here to me. So Jesus is telling them, okay, bring them to me. Just trust me. You got to trust me. Verse 19, let's watch what he does. In ordering the multitudes to recline on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the multitudes. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. And there were about 5,000 men who ate, aside from women and children. With these five loaves and two small fish, Jesus feeds more than 5,000 men, and they had their wives and children with them, so it was way more than 5,000 people. 
So red, there's various opinions over what perhaps these 12 baskets could represent. I don't want to get too hung up on that, but they might represent the 12 tribes of Israel. This group of people is probably primarily Jewish people, if not all Jewish people, given the location of where this is taking place. We're going to see Jesus does a similar miracle for Gentiles, non-Jewish people, when we get over to chapter 15 next week. If you want to look at that, that's in verses 32 to 39. Hey, Larry, where was this taking place? Where did this take place? Okay, so you can't really tell this in Matthew's account because we've gone from in chapter 14, it ends that he's in Nazareth. When you go look at some of the other Gospels, you can see that they've now gone over to Bethsaida. Nazareth's over kind of on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And they're up probably more northern, almost northeast corner, but it's more north is where they are, somewhere around Bethsaida. And they're going to come back over to Genesaret. We're going to see when we get to verse 34 in just a few minutes. So they're going to actually go back, and it's about five miles away. So that's how you can tell where they are. But verse 22, And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. So see... Now he's sending them back over to Genesaret, which is back on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And he sends them ahead because he wants to go back and mourn about John the Baptist and continue in prayer. We'll see in verse 23. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. So he sends them ahead in boats and he stays back to pray. All right. Verse 24, but the boat was already many stadia is how it's translated in my NASB version. You can go look at John 619 and he tells us it's about three to four miles away. So that's the distance. The boat had gone about three or four miles while Jesus went up to pray. So they were about three or four miles away from the land, battered by the waves for the wind was contrary. I don't know if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee. I fortunately was blessed to be able to go. It's a lake. It's a big lake. It's not a sea, but it's surrounded by mountains, and so the winds can get really rough. I mean, it can get rough out there where it looks like a sea. It looks like an ocean. So the wind is really starting to blow, and they're having to row against the wind is what's going on. Verse 25, And in the fourth watch of the night, he, being Jesus, came to them walking upon the sea. They've been able to row against the wind. They're about three or four miles out. All right, according to John, let's talk about what time is this? The Roman custom, they had four three-hour watches. First watch began from 6 to 9 p.m. Then the second watch was from 9 to midnight. Then the third watch was midnight to 3 a.m. So this is the fourth watch. This is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So Jesus had been praying most of the night, and now he's walking out on the water to them. It's during the fourth watch. Verse 26, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, It's a ghost. And they cried out for fear, as I think any of us would if we're out between three and four in the morning and we're seeing somebody walking on the water and we're three or four miles away from shore, we're going to be a little concerned. But let's watch Jesus' reaction. Verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, One, take courage. Two, it is I. And three, do not be afraid. So Jesus makes three statements, all of encouragement and comfort to them. 
He doesn't rebuke them for not recognizing him or not realizing, hey, you've seen my miracles. Don't you think I ought to be able to walk on water? He knows that there's still things that they need to learn, and he understood that. Verse 28, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So Peter has faith, but we're going to see it's just baby faith. He's just beginning to have faith. Verse 29, And he, being Jesus, said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And so Peter wanted to see Jesus. He's not trying to prove a miracle. He had enough faith to get out of the boat. We're going to see he didn't have enough faith to get all the way to Jesus on the water. But this is really important because sometimes we don't even have enough faith to get out of the boat. We have faith, but how much trust do we have in God? Sometimes God is asking us to do something or commanding us to do something. And what Jesus is going to demonstrate here is, look, If you just exercise a little of your faith, I'm going to help you. I'll take care of you. He can take our not-so-strong faith and build upon it. We know what happens. We know this story, verse 30. But seeing the wind, he being Peter, became afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Peter began to fear the storm more than trust the Lord. And so Jesus lets him sink to teach him a lesson. But he's there to save him. He doesn't let him drown because we see in verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter began to doubt rather than trust Jesus. Peter realized he couldn't rely on himself, and so he cries out to Jesus for help. And I'm going to tell you that when Jesus hears us cry out, save me, Jesus, that is beautiful music to Jesus's ears. There's nothing wrong with crying out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't have this. Help me. Lord, help me. Verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. So the lesson is over. The wind stopped. Now the test is over. And Jesus now has this opportunity. He is teaching the disciples that they've got to trust Jesus. Now this storm is coming to an end. Verse 33, And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. So now the disciples, the ones in the boat at least, are they're growing in their faith. They see that Jesus also controls nature. And they need to give up this self-reliance and self-striving and just rely on Jesus. Verse 34, And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Genesaret. So here's where I told you where they were going. That's how you kind of back into where are they. And you can pull up a map if you want to see where these are. Genesaret, still in Jewish territory. It's again, as I said, on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And Nazareth is further inland. 35, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were ill. And they began to entreat him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched, they were cured. It's also interesting, I've talked about this before, that there were a lot of Jewish religious leaders who wouldn't allow anyone who had certain diseases to even touch them. That's not the way Jesus worked. It's not like he had to touch them to cure them because we saw he cured many people without touching them. But Jesus is there for any of us. All we have to do is reach out and call upon his name. 
a short chapter today, but there's a lot of application, I think, that I hope we can talk about here. Jesus, first of all, shows us the importance of solitude and prayer. We see Jesus does that twice in this chapter. I think that's probably something none of us do enough of. And I also just want to mention that when I made the discovery, and hopefully you have too, of just spending quiet time, it's one thing to be talking in prayer, and God wants us to share our hearts with Him in prayer when we're in prayer, even though He knows what's on our hearts. You can't have a relationship with somebody without speaking to them, so He loves us speaking to Him. You also can't have a great relationship, think of it with your wife. If you talk all the time and never give them a chance to talk, what kind of relationship are you going to have? And when I made the discovery of not only spending time in prayer, but just being quiet and saying, okay, I've said what's on my mind, Jesus, but now you tell me, Holy Spirit put on my heart, what is it that I need to be doing? Or who is it that I need to be praying for right now? And it's amazing how then people's names will start coming on my heart. Oh, I need to pray for them. Oh, I, I, yeah, I need to pray for them. Or put on my heart something that I need to be doing or something I need to think about. I've said this before. I've never actually heard God's audible voice, but I feel the promptings. I've heard God speak, not in an audible voice, but promptings that are placed on my heart when I'm just quiet. And so I encourage you to try it. Find some place. The Bible talks about going into a closet. That's great if that's what you want to do. I built a little place with a chair and a small little altar under a tree out in the woods by my house. And that's where I go. And it's quiet and nobody can disturb me. And I encourage you to try that. We see Jesus doing that and we ought to follow his model. God honors our prayers and even our baby steps of faith. As you see, Peter, hopefully everybody on this call has tremendous faith. But sometimes we're just not sure, and we've just got to follow the promptings. And sometimes Jesus wants to get us out of our comfort zone. And if we trust him and say, okay, I feel that this is what you're wanting me to do. I'm going to step out in faith. But Jesus, if that's not the right thing, if I am not discerning your will right, please close the door or correct me. He will honor that, but we got to step out in faith. And a lot of times we find it easier just to sit on our hands and it's like, no, I'm not going to do that right now, or I'm not going to speak up right now. That'd be too uncomfortable. Just step out in faith. And Jesus is there to immediately, we see in verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. And he'll do that with us if we just honor him. God loves the humble cry out for help when we cry out to him, and we ought to do that. When we're in trouble, cry out to him. The truly faithful will continuously seek God and seek help from Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We've got to trust God for our needs and realize that he will provide for us, and he'll provide abundantly, just like he did when the multitudes were fed. You can see God provided way more than what was needed. I have found the same thing even in my giving. When I give and I pray about it and God puts on my heart a number of whatever I'm asking God's guidance on what to give on some type of charity or something to help, I have found that then God rewards that back by being a good steward. Way more comes back to me than what I gave. 
And it's like, okay, great. You were good with that. Now I'm going to give you more. Now go find a place to invest that to help build the kingdom. And so God will provide for us if we just ask and if we just trust and rely on him and spend more time in prayer and seeking his will and spend more time in the word. So with that, I'm going to shut this down a little early this time. It was a short chapter, but I'd love to hear your thoughts and your experiences that others might benefit from in how to apply what we've read today. Larry, I've got a quick question for you. As you talked about reaching out, stepping out in faith, reaching out to God, crying to God, I heard you using the word God and the word Jesus almost interchangeably. I know there are a lot of mysteries about the triune God, but could you talk a little bit about who's answering our prayers? Yeah, a while back I took us through how Jesus taught us to pray. We are to pray to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Okay, it is a mystery. There are three persons in one. It's hard to fully understand that. In fact, I'll just share this with you. In seminary, one of the courses I took was on the triune God. I thought, my goodness, how are we going to spend a whole semester on this? I know it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. I mean, you know, what more is there to know? And I was blown away at how much more that I needed to learn that God has revealed in Scripture about the triune God. There's a lot to know and understand, and I do use them interchangeably. It's the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that is given to us. Jesus is our Savior. I wouldn't get too hung up when you're praying. Are you praying to God? Are you praying to Jesus? Pray to all of them. He's going to honor that. We are to always end our prayers in the name of Jesus. That's who enabled us to have this personal relationship with the Father. Does that answer your question? Absolutely, yeah. Thank you. I'd love to hear, has anybody experienced what I was describing in terms of just being quiet during prayer? Larry, that's a really important distinction that I feel sometimes. When we pray before meals, when we pray for things, issues, problems, concerns that are in our heart, but we're with other people, we hold hands, maybe we do, maybe we don't, but when we're praying with other people, that really is entirely different from when I am praying myself, usually a lot of times before I go to sleep, when I lay down, and that may not be the best time, but there is some quiet time, and I'll say my prayers, and I feel like I have a direct connection because nobody else on earth is listening. My wife is not listening. It's just me and Jesus, and I feel a different connection. I'm not sure if I've ever verbalized it before, but it's a whole different, distinct feeling. I know he's listening. Yeah, sometimes then just being quiet and ask for him to speak to you is also very powerful. Every day I start my prayer time with a little devotion, Bible reading, and regular prayer, thanksgiving, and I petition in the quiet when nobody else is awake. I've done that since college, and it's just kind of my habit. And then the other thing, as far as applying today, what you said, faith. When we pray, let's say you're the saying grace, before dinner and you've got family or friends, I would just say you need to pray boldly, and that's an influence on your wife and your children, and it honors God. Whether you speak eloquently or not, we as the men in our families need to be bold prayers. When trouble hits our family, we need to tell our family that we turn it over to God and be the, be the prayer warrior and be the one that has faith and trust and communicates that everything's going to be all right. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Back when we were studying Matthew 6, and if anybody missed that, you can go back and listen to the recording on it. That's where Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer. And I spent some time then talking about how the Lord's Prayer is a model for us to follow in prayer. I think we probably all memorized the words, but memorization and then just reciting in a rote fashion the words, that's not the way God, Jesus, Holy Spirit want us to pray. We should actually think about each of the words as we say it, our Father who art in heaven. We should think about what those words mean. That's what true prayer is. But then we can actually use that as a model when we pray. I won't spend the time now because we spent so much time when we were studying Matthew 6. If people go back and listen to that recording, it's a great model to follow when you're praying. And that's why Jesus gave it to us. What about stepping out in faith? Anybody want to share an experience? And if you want, it can be about a friend that you heard about where they explained to you how they weren't sure, but they stepped out in faith and Jesus really helped them. Larry, I just want to share one truly life-changing experience for me that was many years ago, but was really impactful in my life. My older brother sometimes sinks into depression. And it gets debilitating. It gets like literally life-threatening for him. It's happened two or three times. And the very first time it happened, I being the baby sister, who growing up, my brother practically never gave me the time of day or listened to me, seven years older than me. When that happened the first time, my whole family was extremely concerned about him. And there was just this calling on my heart that God was telling me, you're the one, you need to go to him, you need to tell him what he needs to hear. And I was resisting and not believing that. Anyway, long story short, I went to him not knowing at all what I was going to say or how I was going to say it or what I was going to do. And the first mantra, I mean, it was like a mantra that I had to keep saying over and over to him, and they were words that God gave me. And now listening to this story about the Sea of Galilee, I realized that this is exactly where it came from. I realized that my brother was like in a pit. He was deep. He was way down, like at the bottom of a well, you know. And I kept telling him to put his eyes on Jesus and put one foot in front of the other. Keep God in front of him and put Satan behind him and put one foot in front of the other. Eyes on Jesus one step at a time. And honestly, that was just the starting point that he needed to begin to even believe that he deserves to live. I just look back on that and thank the Lord so many times for carrying me through that, for giving me the words. I didn't know that was exactly what was needed at the time, but it was. I'll stop there because that's really the point. It's just trusting God and recognizing your own inadequacies and being willing to go into a circumstance that you feel totally unequipped for and just ask God to lead you. And he will. He will. That's all I wanted to share. I just appreciate you so much sharing that. I think that's going to be helpful to a lot of people. And it's so true. If we will just trust Jesus, he's going to be there. He's got us. If we just tell him, look, I don't have the ability to do this. I need you to do this. I'm turning it over to you. I found that the days when I'm leaving here to go to a meeting somewhere or something to start my day, 
the days that I say, okay, God, I don't know what you have in store for me today, but just put somebody in front of me in my life today somewhere that I can share the gospel with. And when I pray that prayer, most of the time it happens. And give me the words. Give me the words to do it. And just give me the strength to do it because I don't know what to say. I remember the first mission trip I went on, and it was in Mexico, and I sort of speak Spanish, but I am not fluent at all, and I was very concerned that I was just going to mess things up because I don't understand the nuances of the language. I had an interpreter with me, but I was amazed to see the way Jesus honored that and enabled me to understand what the people that I was talking to on the streets gave me the ability to understand way beyond what my Spanish-speaking capability is. Words came back to me that I had long forgotten in Spanish. It's just very powerful to see the way God can work in your life if you just take that first step and say, look, I'm not capable. This isn't about me. This is about you. So take over. I'm going to take the first step, just as you said, take that first step and just watch him work. And I'm telling you, it will do more. As I said earlier, Jesus will take that weak first step of our faith and build tremendously on it. When you see it happening through you, First of all, you're very humbled. You can't believe that this is me. I say, as messed up as I am, God wants to use me as an instrument to help build his kingdom. And then you go back and look as we began this gospel, talking about the genealogy, and you look at all the people back in Jesus's line on the humanity side, and you see how they were all messed up. God can work amazing things through every single person listening to this if we will just take that first little step. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up for my weekly blog and podcast by sending a text message to 56316 and then type Larry in the text box and hit send. I hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.